everybody, and welcome to the Energetic Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa LaFera, an astrologer, tarot consultant, all-around creative from sunny San Diego, California. And this is the 100th and 11th episode of the podcast, airing March 29th, 2021. And I love how we made it to 111. If you're a number person like I am, that's pretty exciting. Well, in this episode, I am pleased to present to you my discussion with Dr. Jen Zart, PhD, who will join me for a conversation on dignity, tradition, and Vesta, where Jen and I kind of do a freestyle chat that flows from a discussion on using the traditional technique of essential dignity in a responsible and empowering way to how ancient astrology can mesh with modern astrology and how each astrologer can have a personal preference in what to focus on while reading a chart. Now, we also dive into her recent work using the asteroid Vesta, uh, her making of Vesta meteorite oils, which is super exciting, and what this more modern planetary body has added to her recent practice. Now, I always learn so much by chatting with Dr. Z, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now, on another note, there is still time to sign up for the Astrology of Awakening 2 Summit, which will be airing live from April 15th through April 18th. And I will be co-hosting and speaking at this fine event, along with Dr. Zart and my two previous podcast guests, Taylor Ursula and Rachel Lang. Uh, And it will be free to watch live, and you'll have access to 24-hour replays. Now, you can also purchase the all-access pass that gives you access to the videos to watch forever because it will be a lot of content. We have, I think it's like 20 plus astrologers, female astrologers that are showing up with all this wonderful knowledge. So with the All Access Pass, you'll be able to watch it at your, uh, you know, when when you have time to watch it, but also take it in later because there's going to be so much shared. But we'll also have all these amazing and varied bonuses that the presenters are going to be sharing with their talks as well. Now, the pass is still at a discounted rate that will be in place until the start of the summit. So if you are interested, really now is the best time if you want to save some money. But in any event, it is going to be free to watch live. And we are currently having a presenter contest to see how many people we can get to join us. So I have my own special link in the description of this podcast for you to register, as well as on the front page of my website at energeticprinciples.com and on my Instagram bio page in my link tree. So come on down to register and support me in the process and really spread the good word to anyone who may be interested in attending. So all right, who is ready to hear all about dignity, tradition, and Vesta? Well, here we go. Now let's meet our guest. All right. I am so happy to welcome back to the podcast. We have Dr. Jen Zart on the program again. Thank you for joining me, Jen. Thank you for having me. We are uh, flying by the seat of our astro pants today. As you know, I'm doing a series uh, with upcoming speakers for the Astrology of Awakening 2 Summit. Uh, and Jen will be joining us as one of our fine presenter- presenters. Um, and so we're just kind of going to have an open chat today, actually, a little bit about uh, what Jen's going to present. Um, but also, uh, you know, she is out there in the astro world doing so many fabulous things. So we're just going to kind of chat it up about what she's been involved in and see where the conversation takes us from there. But before we get started here, uh, Jen, Will you share a little bit uh, with the listeners about yourself, a quick background? Well, first off, my astro pants are very colorful because I have Aquarius rising. So there's that. Um, So I started learning astrology when my mother grounded me in high school. And my German teacher was a closeted astrologer, but very active in the community at that time. So after school, he taught me astrology. And I decided there and then I had this instant download of um, what my mission in life was going to be was to become the... German equivalent of the historian of astrology that Nick Campion was for English speaking astrology history. So then I did that. I went and I got my PhD at Berkeley in the German department because the nice thing about fiction is that they don't care about whether astrology is real or not because none of the things they study are real. And so then after that, I went back to the Sophia Center in Wales, which I still work with, and got my master's degree in the history of astrology, doing all the things that a literature department wouldn't let me do for my PhD. And now I work as an editor in many ways. I have two presses, Revelor Press, Sophia Center Press, co-owned with Nick Campion. And I also just became the senior editor of the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is really, really fun. 
Hmm. And a high prestige, I might say, because the mountain astrologer is uh, very coveted in the astrological world. And so I can't imagine uh, all, all that you must edit as it comes through. Um, and I, I remember Jen telling me last time she was on the program, uh, we did a program a while back. I think it might've been, uh, this was pre birth. Jen was still pregnant with her daughter then. Uh, and we talked about astrology and academia, which was a fascinating conversation, but I know that's just around the time that you were about to share that you were becoming the editor of mountain astrologer. Um, so lots has changed in your life. I'm assuming. (laughs) assuming Yes. So much has changed. Oh my gosh. I mean, I mean, think about even, you know, when people say the lockdown, I had some complications in my pregnancy that required me to be hospitalized a number of times. So my lockdown began about six months before everyone else's did. And uh, so, yeah. And then I ended up giving birth and staying in the NICU for a little while and then buying a house and moving to a new city. And now here I am married with a child in a home that I own. And that's like, whoa, you know, this jet set pre pre uh, baby life is, you know, it wasn't just ended by the pandemic. It's like also just this other whole sector, you know, you could even say a chapter has changed. Yeah. Well, let's enter grand conjunctions. Uh, that also also helps. Um, but I have to say, I've seen pictures of your house online and, oh my God, I'm so envious to the greenery, the plants, the, oh, I want some nature in my life. So it looks like, um, that change seems rather favorable, at least from this end. But hey, the grass is I'm, only greener. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I mean, I still, I think it's distracted me from realizing I haven't set foot on a plane since September of 2019, which is a little horrifying given that everything in my charts in the ninth house is like, what am I doing? But now I'm just publishing the living daylights out of everything. So it's soaking up all that ninth house energy. Yeah. Cause you said, uh, yeah, you used to definitely get around to different places and experience yeah, all that ninth house. See, yeah. I have a lot of ninth house too, but it's in cancer. So, you know, I'm, I travel from home. Um, okay. there you go. Yeah. See, I had it in Libra. So I was in the air. You literally were in the air. Yes. I love it. Frequent flyer. Yeah. All right. So, uh, now, as I mentioned, Jen is going to be presenting here at our upcoming summit. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, that and your talk on a human approach to essential dignity. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so essential dignity oftentimes, sometimes gets lumped in with essentialism. And what I mean by that is that there's sometimes this trend or tendency to associate rulership with some kind of moral good, which then the flip side of that means that being in detriment is somehow morally bad or somehow bad. And that always irked me because in some of my own training in traditional astrology, there's another way to look at it. So I'm going to be sharing about how we can extract meaning from essential dignities around the world, like around the spectrum that they provide to create interpretive meaning for people that isn't detrimental to being humane. Because oftentimes if you say like, oh, well, I have Mars and cancer, I must have a bad Mars. I mean, what's that really going to do for you? Yeah. There's another way to work with that. So that's what I'm going to be sharing so that we can all become a little more humane in our approach to talking with clients and, and rectifying some of the bad rap that traditional astrology gets for being fatalistic or black and white. And I think the, the locus for me here actually stems back from some of my um, early work in German literature and philosophy with Nietzsche because he has an essay called, um, oh my gosh, it's skipping my mind because we're on a podcast and it's like when you go into the record store and you have that list of CDs, but you forget it. And you're like, I don't know which album I'm looking for. Um, but it's um, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond good and evil. And it's like, and there's an essay at some point called, um, you know, on meaning in an extra moral sense. And basically what he's saying is, is that things are what they are and we we attach moral meanings to them, but like, what are they really? Like, how can we interpret something in its own essence without creating good or bad out of that? And and what does, what story is it telling as its own essential principle? And so um, also thinking about the concept of essentialism at all, you know, here we are kind of perhaps laying on meaning to these placements that might not really be there because we're filtering it through our own lens. And so to you know, abstract our perspective from a different vantage point, you know, attending my talk hopefully will distort your view just enough to allow new possibilities to come in, ultimately with the aim of having you have a better chance of helping someone instead of causing accidental harm by talking about things in terms of good and bad, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally resonate with this talk a hundred percent. Um, as I I've spoken on the subject myself, uh, because I feel the same way you do about it. It's speaking as someone with a chart that has no dignity. Um, and, right, and like, and, how do you feel about that? Then you say, Oh, I'm not good at anything. Well, that's actually not true. What you're good at isn't commonly seen as the normal definition of good, but it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. Well, for me, it feels like how I resonate with it is just on the terms of consistency. Um, and I can honor that in my life that I can be really, I have actually been quite good at things and have gotten uh, um, recognized for that. Um, and, but I think part of it and having so many peregrine planets is that I am a natural wanderer and I like to experience many things in life. Um, and so it really comes down to me as a sense of consistency and knowing if that's present or not in your chart. Um, and that is not, like you said, a morally good or bad thing. Um, and so, yeah, I can't wait to hear your talk and your take on it because it's a it's a subject that is passionate to me based on my own chart. Um, and uh, yeah, so that being said, do you know what day do you present, Jan? Do you know? I believe I'm on a Saturday morning. Saturday morning nine a.m. or the earliest slot on Saturday. Yeah. Okay. I know you all have Saturday morning free, so you better be registering for this summit. I will come. be your favorite astro cartoon. Like think of it like Saturday cartoons and get your cereal and your, you know, oat milk or whatever you're drinking, you know, and then have a good time. Perfect. Um, now we have so much going on with the summit because it's four days of talks after talks after talks. And depending on how much you can take in, uh, <laughs> you know, there is the all access pass that you can purchase to come back to these talks later because some of them, some of them, all of them are going to be so rich in nature that you're going to want to come back. Uh, but that being said, part of the beauty of the all access pass is the fact that you get bonuses for each speaker. So Jen, what, what, what is your bonus that you're sharing? So my bonus is one of my favorite traditional techniques, which has to do with triplicity rulers of the houses and the way that you can use those to create very precise interpretations. And if you practice them, you can even do it live when someone in a consult is asking you a specific question about a specific topic. So triplicity rulers of the houses comes from Bonatti, which is a 12th century astrologer who was quoting a different guy named El Andar Zagar. And what it does is it takes the triplicity rulers. So in the essential dignities related to my talk, it breaks out house topics into categories ruled by a specific planet. So for example, the seventh house is not just your romantic monogamous partner. It's all contractual partners so there's the first category, which is that marital partner, the marital contract. Then there's the open enemy, which is your legal opponent, right? So this is how you go from being married to divorced because then they shift planetary ruler. And then you suddenly have like, okay, what is it going to be like when I choose to get divorced now? And that person becomes now your open opponent. And then also business partners, contractual partnerships in that nature. So these are ruled by three different planets, depending on all kinds of factors, which are in the bonus. And then when someone's openly asking you a question, for example, like, I'd really like to get divorced, but how will I do? How, how successful will my attempt to remove myself from this person be? And it could be that the planet that rules that person's marital partner is strong, but the planet that rules that person's open enemies is weak vis-a-vis -vis the planet that rules that person, right? And so you can evaluate then and there and answer specifically just how exactly they're going to be not able to combat the, the legal proceedings as easily as they would if they were to be staying married. So it's actually something you can do with you know, questions about siblings, questions about pets, questions about all kinds of things without using horary either, because within the natal chart itself, from a traditional perspective, it's the planet that rules the ascendant that represents the person and all the other planets represent that person's life world. So the triplicity rulers of the houses actually allow us to determine what specifically each planet accidentally is ruling in that person's life. And when I say accident, I mean the accident of our birth having happened at a certain time on a certain point of earth creates the house cusps that allow this technique to work. So anyway, it's a really cool thing and it's added a lot of sharpness to my practice so that when people are talking real time in a consult and I've done my own, you know, I would say sort of like regular prep and then they throw a curveball in my direction because I have this other technique memorized. I can like pivot at a point and actually give them a very pointed answer where they go, are you psychic? How did you know that? And I'm like, I'm actually literally applying rules. <laughs> there yeah. are rules here. Right. So it's just one of the most powerful techniques that I, that I've come across and that I love to teach. 
Well, that being said, that's a hell of a bonus. Um, <laughs> if, you know, I mean, I can't wait to, uh, I, I, based on, uh, some of my own research, I think I know where you're coming from with that, uh, that approach. Um, but I can't wait to see the way you lay it out. Um, yeah. uh, because that's, that's the value of a mentor and a teacher is that you can read up an approach, but depending how someone presents it to you, it really helps it stick. So I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, but that's kind of, uh, I know one of the things that we thought about talking about was just traditional techniques in general. Uh, and you bring up a good point there. You're like, are you psychic? Or are you just bringing, and you're like, no, I'm applying rules. And that's yeah. really what a uh, technical, uh, technical astrology, traditional astrology, which I guess, you know, Hey, uh, slip there, uh, really brings to us, right? Yeah. There are a lot more ways to analyze the data that we see than we are given with modern approaches that we're trying to make up for the deficit in transmission, right? Because a lot of the tradition wasn't necessarily transmitted actively and I'm not going to say all, right? The one thing that I combat as an editor in the astrology community is these generalizations. Astrologers don't do this. Well, you know, how do you know? Do you know all of them? Because there are so many astrologers who are never going to go to a conference, publish an essay, and they have hundreds of clients and they're very successful. They just don't mingle, right? So when we're looking at modern astrology, especially as it got wedded to process psychology with Liz Green's work, for example, it was trying to solve a different set of questions. It was actually looking at the chart as a map of the soul, right? Stemming from humanistic astrology in the early 19th or 20th century, Dane Rudyard and such. And so when we do that, we have a whole different way to use the astrological symbols. And so it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It means that it's answering different questions so the tr questions that traditional astrology answers seem to be more event-oriented and external to the concept of the individual's soul and or their psychological progress. So we can use both styles. I think it's very important for someone who considers themselves to be a professional to actually learn both. When I say both, like, what is that? There's actually more than two. Yeah. But to learn many, many kinds of astrology so that when a client does come and say, I have this set of questions, you can identify them and say, hmm, that's not my style of astrology, but Melissa does that. Let me point you in her direction, and I'm going to keep going with my specific format, right? So um, when we look at the tradition, you know, they were very much concerned with, like, what's going to happen? Literally, like, what will happen? So, for example, when we see the modern computer printout of every possible mathematical transit and... <laughs> You know, you've got like, oh my gosh, the sun's going to be 165 degrees away from my natal sun. What does it mean? And it's like, uh, nothing. It's about to be opposed, maybe, right? But that aspect is called, a, I can't pronounce it, Quindicile? I don't know. Quindicile? 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 It's one of those words I've never heard. I've never really <laughs> talked about it, but it's the one of, it's the, it's my favorite aspect though, even though I've italicized or made Italian. Um, it's representing obsession and compulsion, mm. which to me is the ultimate in modern uh, astrology's mathematical, you know, computerization of the chart. Because it's like, how are you going to say, like, what's the difference between 120 and 180, right? A trine and an opposition. Now you have this obsessive aspect, right? Which is like just almost an opposition, but not quite. And yet when you read it, like, you know... People who have their sons 165 degrees apart are usually unrequited lovers who are obsessed with each other individually but can't make it happen, right? I've seen this. It's crazy. So it's like, okay, well, modern astrology's got something there, right? But with the traditional techniques, they have, you know, they didn't have computers to give them a whole entire scope of transits, and they didn't really, like, do it that way. They basically would rank transits by using perfections. And so that would help them narrow down which planets they had to actually focus on because I see the planets in a traditional sense when we're looking at traditional timing techniques as running a relay race. And not every planet has a baton and there are a number of batons, right? There's a number of players, but sometimes one planet just snatches them all up and like that's the planet you've got to look at, right? Yes. And so, you know, in this way, the, the traditional timing techniques help us evaluate when a specific planet will definitely deliver its promise. And then we add in other interpretal factors to say, okay, well, it's going to be something that's unavoidable. It's going to be something that's merely a possibility. And if you'd like to go there now that you've taken a look under the hood of your chart, 
take it on. And here's the time that you should try it, right? So a lot of my work with clients revolves around, um, they're usually small business owners and I try to help them optimize their work in the world and target it in the right places. I also do locational astrology. So there's a way to work smart and not hard when you're seeing your chart, you're looking at the wavelengths of time and the qualities that are expressed and seeing which planets are actually in charge right and so from a modern context if you just if you don't know those specific yeah. timings of when the planets are in charge you're going to look at a list of transits and it's going to be like okay well then the moon's going to be 45 degrees away from your mars on that day and then mercury's going to make a 72 degree aspect with uranus on the next day and it's like how does the client understand that right yeah. so it like helps us really just hone in on when when we can give the best advice that's my experience with traditional being useful to people is using it as a tool for pragmatic action as opposed to sort of a, a, an hour spent with somebody talking about how they're feeling or some kind of psychological thing. I'm not trained in that, right? That's not my yeah. job. So yeah. I do not do that with people. Um, and it's, yeah, that's all right. We all have, that's why we have an entire community so that we can, you know, have lots of conversations lots of conversations uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. of different consultations uh and they're all they all are they're all valid in their own way that's the beauty of it but i totally resonate with what you're saying jen because it's kind of the same approach i mean i end up i have cancer scorpio prominent so i do end up talking to people about their feelings uh but <laughs> and that's okay but i love doing the hot spot timing with those planets that are lifted up uh through like you said you know not all planets are acting equally at all times and maybe they are but are they taking prominence mm-hmm. over that storyline of your life at that given time, year, et cetera? Right. Um, and so, and like you said, like an hour, when you have an hour to talk to someone, an hour and a half max, because I really don't think people should be talking over an hour and a half in a consultation <laughs> because otherwise, you know, you leave, you're like, you walk away, you got like the dizzy birds like hanging over oh, your yeah. head, you know? Um, so there's only so much that you can take away. So why not go to what is going to be uh, pretty much most impactful because a lot of times what's impactful for to us on the outside and how we're moving uh, through life in tangible ways uh, affect us on the inside. So I think it's kind of yeah. a twofer. Uh, of, of Speaking of which, that. That, that actually brings up the house system question too, because you know the more traditional techniques use symbolic house systems like whole sign or equal. And in the development of house systems, now we have, you know, a, a plethora of quadrant-based systems, and Placidus is the one that was programmed into the computers, which has then, because of that, made it very popular. And I use both at the same time. I get this question all the time, which house system do you use? And I'm like, why are you only using one? Yeah. If you're only using one, there's something wrong with your astrology, because that's like saying I only use a large hammer. It's like, well, sometimes you have to have a small one to get in the nooks and crannies and do that, right? So the question is, you know, what what question does this house system answer? That's really the point with that, right? And so I actually use them both simultaneously in every single consult that I do because the symbolic house system is like looking at the chart from a journalist's perspective outside in. This is how I describe it to clients because then they'll get it. And then the Placidus or the other quadrant-based systems are inside out. And your actual lived experience distorted from what should be perhaps your like pure form, right? So if the whole sign system is what people see and perceive, the Placidus version, just to use the most common quadrant-based system, is the distorted lens of what it looks like from the inside out, right? But actually, which is the distortion? Is it the outside or the inside? And so then we spot these gaps of meaning, right? So you'll see it, for example, most prominently with someone who has a quadrant-based eighth house sun, but it's actually in the ninth, or someone who has a quadrant-based 12th house sun, but it's actually in the first. So in the second example, for example, this person wants to hide and they can't. They so want to be behind the scenes and it doesn't matter what they do and how they turn, everybody sees what they're up to. And they're like, why can't I just get away, right? Or the 11th house sun that's actually in the whole sign 12th, this is the person who wants to be the, the club leader and into the whole you know mix and they just can't seem, they always do something that kind of, makes them be in the background and behind the scenes and they can't quite mount the energy to get in front of the people, right? And so there's a pain point there. So I find that talking about the the disjunctures, or that's a funny 50 cent word, talking about the, the mismatches between the whole sign description and the Placidus description or the quadrant-based system description will help someone identify the differences between how they see themselves and how other people treat them. 
And when they can see that there's this misinterpretation there because other people can't see what they see from their vantage point, and we all have this, like you have, you're in your own head. I can't get in there, right? I can see your life from this perspective and say a lot of things about you that might be true, but I can't talk from the inside out. And this is why I think modern psychological and different other modern approaches were so effective because when you're speaking from the quadrant-based systems, people feel it. It's coming from their inside. They go, how did you know I feel this way, right? Whereas like when you talk from the whole sign system, they go, yeah, that's true. I, I can acknowledge the truth in that, but they don't feel it in the same mm. way, right? So when you bring up both in the same you know, package, then suddenly you just give them this three-dimensional picture, this stereoscopic vision, right? We have two eyeballs. We have this one and this one, and then the distance gives us depth perception, right? Yeah. And what we're seeing. And so that gives them that concept of alternate, again, alternate possibilities to understand, oh, this is why people always treat me this way in this part of my life. I get it now. And it doesn't mean you need to bend them out of shape and force them into a whole sign interpretation of themselves. You can just let them know the range. And then they can settle in and say, oh yeah, astrology said that would happen. Oh, that's funny. Look, that person's doing the expected thing. Oops, right? So whatever, moving on. And it kind of helps them get more comfortable in their own skin, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it solves a lot of like what we perceive as pain. I can see that, right? And so that's an interesting thing to me is that even just mixing house systems and having that conversation with awareness will help people, yeah, get more comfortable with themselves. And like, and that's, you know, a, a very positive development, I think, when they come to learn more about their own chart in that way. Um, but that said, I do have to make a little bit of a, caveat here because then you'll say well do you use them like for example would you read a whole a horary chart with whole sign and placidus and i'd say no i'd use regio montanus because i'm trying to advocate for this open house system so when someone says which house system do you use my answer is an open house system and they go what's that and it's when you use various house systems according to the question you're trying to answer that are historically appropriate for that technique Right. Yeah. So it's historically appropriate when you're doing Horary and William Lilly's tradition to use the house system he used. And if you're trying to do Valens, then use whole sign. Right. And if you're trying to do modern, pick a quadrant system, you know, pick Porphyry, Koch, Placidus, you name it. But just being aware of like what they're good for, I think, is important. And also having flexibility and being able to use the house system that helps you answer the question the best, whatever that concern is. Right. Yeah. So, well, there, I think with horary too, there's a lot of intention behind it as far as the practitioner is, you know, because when you get a question, you answer the question, you draw the chart when you're ready to draw the chart. It's not when the chart comes in, basically. And so there's sure. a lot of intention behind it. And so I think if you have like a specific, like I... I I totally see where you're going with that. And I, I pull horary charts uh, with Reggio Montanus too for exactly what you're saying is because that's how I was originally taught uh, to do it. But I am a cam- I'm of the camp too where I primarily use whole signs, but I bl- bring in Placidus to get exactly what you're saying with the, uh, the, um, the imagery of the two eyes and stereoscopic vision and depth perception because I think all it does is it adds more in interpretation, uh, to those planetary placements, uh, yeah, the external events and the internal feelings of them, but also those two paired together within just the, uh, correspondences with those two houses. Like I'll see just a really nice blending of both of those two together externally and internally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I am of the same camp where absolutely look at more. Um, and hopefully, uh, as you get more in tune with that approach, it will just come naturally to how you read it, you know, because yeah. at first it's like, oh, that's a lot of information. Um, but there's uh, the, the best uh, approach that I got from that. And when I started using that was actually reading uh, Ben Dykes, I think it was intro to traditional astrology. And he just kind of mentioned um, actually about using Placidus more as power placements, you know, getting mm-hmm. planets closer to the angles uh, and stuff to understand it that way too. Um, yeah with just kind of position of power. And for so sure. I feel you. I feel Those you cusps are super important for lived experience for real. Yes, they yeah. are. Well, okay. So traditional astrology. But you know, I mean, when we look at the development of astrology throughout history, every human culture has looked to the sky for meaning. Yeah. Because we have this really cool thing doing, you know, coming up every day and going down and making things bright and then disappearing and comes up back. Oh my gosh, got reborn. Right. So, I mean, our, our human experience on this planet has demanded that we look beyond the surface of the land into the sky 
And the Sophia Center right now, there's a research group um, looking into like the ways in which we can understand skyscapes, mm. right? And the idea of landscape versus skyscape. And so they're taking a more qualitative approach to the history of astronomy, which is a very different thing than the history of astrology in its own way, right? Archaeoastronomy and rock formations, in addition to how that shapes the sky and what stories the sky tells different cultures through that. So this leads to us investing an approach of sky meaning, whether that's a mathematical permutation, right? The Mayan astrologers used the transits of Venus as a mathematical foundation for how they were computing their meaning. We use the sun, 360, right? Um, so when we invest any approach with a certain amount of intentional energy, it works. It's almost like the, the idea that, you know, you, you get into a movie and you're just in the life world of the film. Mm-hmm. But then if you like get distracted by your phone, that belief breaks and it doesn't work at that point. But the more people who watch the movie, the more it gets invested in human culture, right? And so then you can make a reference to any kind of, you know, film person like Bueller. If I say that word, everybody has an image, right? And then you have that chalkboard and you're just like, yeah. Um, and so that's how we actually get the, the iterations of astrological practice. And then things develop, they work for a certain community, and then they stop working too. Right. So it's not like if you develop a technique for yourself because of your research and all of that, and you cross check it for confirmation bias, which is something we all need to do more of, then it could also actually just stop working at one point. Right. So I think this is another reason why we have others developing new things or different approaches because they're seeing it from a different vantage point in time and culture and their concerns are different as well. So, Mm. you know, like the, the Arabic era astrologers would first calculate a a young prince's length of life. Well, we don't do that because in our culture, if you predict someone's going to die, you get a lawsuit, right? So (laughs) we're not interested in that. Plus modern medicine means that critical times equal hospital stay, right? If it were traditional astrology before modern medicine, I probably would have died last year, right? I was that, that was that close. And yet I was in good hands with medical care, right? And they were able to, to make sure that I was not dead. So, you know, and that was in my chart, right? I can talk about the specifics, not in a public venue, but it was there, you know, mm-hmm. and I saw it coming from years away and I'm like, Oh, look at that. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And then it started happening and I was like, Oh my God, here we are. Here okay, we are. cool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, um, yeah, I just think that, you know, and there's a word for this. It's a magical word. It comes from magic, um, egregore, right? So when we, found Chiron in 1977, for example, we invested it with a certain measure of meaning based off of its name and the mythology and various other facets of let's figure out what this new body means. And so the more people who put their intentions in it, they built out this entity of its own and we gave it this power, right? And so as more asteroids were discovered, I mean, you know, they were found earlier, but this kind of like I'm thinking, for example, of the one I've been working with recently, Vesta, it's like this idea of, you know, we're giving this interpretive meaning to this newly discovered body outside of, quote unquote, the tradition. How do we make it work? And yet it works. Why does it work? It works because a lot of people use it and keep using it. And there's something about that, right? There's this collective myth, right? In the same way that we think that we have this mythology of math being this quantitative absolute, but it's not. The more you get into math, the more you realize it's basically applied philosophy. So there's not this like, you know, black and white and and human beings from all cultures have invested in story together collectively to create meaning for themselves. So that's what we do with these skyscapes these star things right these points of light or theoretical points that you know are are mixtures of of this arc distance to that one and so you know here we have our palette of adjectives and verbs and nouns and that's how we are able to somehow see through time see into the future and also understand the past better right yeah Well, it speaks to the power of collective creation, really, uh, which we're doing all the time since the beginning of time. And what we have today around us, (laughs) you know, is a result of that in many ways. Of course, it's finited in communities like the astrological one, which we're talking about, but it's also on the bigger landscape of just being human uh, and how we uh, interact with the world with what we've created, because at some point we've created it the whole way through. 
Um, Including the language we're speaking now. Like, how is that any different, right? So it's like, oh, you've used the word creation. Where did that come from? And could we use a different word? Yes, there's also other ways to understand that from other cultures than their vantage points and traditions and all of that. Yeah. Well, let me pick your brain real quick uh, while we have a little time left on uh, on just your your journey with Vesta. I, it's so funny because you keep using the word investment. Uh, and every time you say <laughs> it, I think of a Vesta. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the best there. Um, and her being a second house moment. Yeah, <laughs> investment. investment. <laughs> uh, and yeah, just that, uh, uh, you know, a non-traditional body, I guess, and what you've been doing. Uh, yeah. With- so it was actually sort of an accident Coinciding with the purchase of my home, I was also, I have for a while now been collecting meteorites. And so my my hookup, Meteorite Mike, called me and he's like, I got some Vesta. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. What if I made some Vesta oils that had actual pieces of Vesta in it? And I said, how much you got? And he said, you know, he shared me like these different falls. Vesta falls to earth a lot. If you look into any kind of meteorites, like there's been many different times that chunks of Vesta have fallen to Earth. And so I picked seven because I wanted to kind of attune with the seven planets and make a sort of astrological set of alchemical, magical oils, right? And put all the adjectives in there. And uh, basically kind of have this concept from contagion magic, right? Which says, okay, well, if something's had contact with the asteroid Vesta inside of this vial, then everything in that vial is actually directly contact, you know, having contact with Vesta itself so that when you contact it with yourself, your skin, now that's like, you're basically touching the asteroid, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that you can use that same kind of contagion magic to do all kinds of other things, right? So if you wanted to like um, curse or bless someone, that that oil would be in contact with something cursing or blessing and that way it transmits the signal wider. It's kind of like a battery, right? Yeah. So then I went and turned on my academic brain because I couldn't not, right? So I'm like, okay, well, before I sit around and do this and just start pulling things out of thin air, let me research about the history of the vessel order and learn their names and actually kind of fit, meet them, right? These women from the past who were guarding the Roman state. And so um, in line with where the Vesta asteroids fell to Earth, these meteorites actually came and how, and the stories with that coupled with my knowledge of the planets and tuning in and kind of being in a meditative space, um, I ended up creating these seven oils that are Three, the first three, the benefics, um, the Jupiter, Venus, and then I consider Mercury in this case to be benefic, are the first Vestals, right? Um, and so I chose three names that are fairly well known of being the first Vestal priestesses. And then there's the Mars one, who uh, is named after Amelia, the Vestal who was accused of breaking her vow of chastity, but was found not guilty because she ended up also rekindling the flame that was about to go out with her garment. And so you can imagine this brave rending of the garment and starting the fire again and this kind of like, do not bury me alive. I'm going to start the fire again. Go away, right? So she just had this kind of ferocity. And one of the herbs that's associated with the Vestal Order, I did a lot of research on the herbs that people have used to venerate them. And there's this one called, I can't pronounce it either, right? This is where <laughs> limits of my knowledge, but asafoetida or something like that. It's like a horrible smell. It's really, really burny and like acrid and bitter and super martial. So it's just like, okay, cool. I'm going to use this one because I was imagining like that little garment setting the flame back on fire, right? Just like getting that that central flame going again. And then <clears throat> picking one for Saturn, there was one Vestal who served for 57 years and her name was Akia. And that became my new favorite word. So I was like, all right, here we go. And I love Saturn. So I was like, okay, here we have Akia. And then the two lights. So the last Vestal I named after the moon because or I sort of aligned with the moon because of this idea of youth and quickness and how fast the moon Mm. moves through the Zodiac and Mm -hmm. how she was the last one. It was over. Right. And then you come down to earth. And then there was a part of Vesta that fell in Morocco in a place called Tatooine, which star Wars fans might recognize. So then Rhea Silvia was the mother of Romulus and Remus and this mythical, like supra Vestal, like the sort of, you know, center of it all. Because mm-hmm. without her, there'd be no Rome. Right? Exactly. So I was like, well, clearly she needs to be the sun. Sun, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this kind of mythical thing. And I'm like, the myth of Star Wars, the myth of Rhea Silvia, like, here we go. Um, and it was very much fun. So, you know, as a sub working, as I was, you know, proceeding, I asked a second generation witch to gather certain leaves from a part of California and send them to me so that I could create 
um, a, a sort of talismanic oil that was inside of the oils. So it's kind of like talisman upon talisman, talisman. layered. Yeah. And so over the course of months, I began them when Vesta went into Virgo. And I actually released them. Vesta's going to go direct in late April. So I released them before Vesta's out of Virgo because I actually wanted people to start using them. But, um, you know, the idea was that I was just layering in these different talismanic oils to wake them up and to, to establish this relationship with them. So when Vesta was angular in certain ways in different parts of the lunar cycle and different parts of, you know, each planetary movement through a certain timing using planetary hours, I was able to kind of craft together. And each of them have different amounts of different types of oils and herbs in them. So, um, but all of this was actually a way of cleansing my own home from energies that didn't belong, right? So in working with this, one way that I've come to interpret Vesta in the chart has to do with clearing the static of something that doesn't belong. And one of the images for this comes from the academic research. A woman named Robin Wildfang wrote an amazing book about the Vessel Order. And she talks about a sterile fire. So I think of like a safety pin when you're trying to mm, poke mm -hmm. yourself on a camping trip and you don't want to get infected. So you burn it a little bit yeah. and it creates this sterile piece of equipment for you, which goes hand in hand with the Virgo concept, right? It's just like, we're creating a sterility here. We're not getting pregnant and we're not, you know, we're keeping this fire burning, but really it's about creating the type of sterility that makes a super order of fertility possible. Right. So if you have a contaminated barn, your animals are not going to be fertile. If you have a yeah. contaminated crop storage system, you're not going to be able to eat because your food is going bad. Right. So it's this idea of this sterile fire burning through your chart and where it's going. The house it's transiting is saying, what do we need to get rid of here so that we can create the conditions of fertility in this part of your life? Right. And mm. it's burning through in that way. Right. So. That to me, I think is the most important facet of how Vesta can be worked with in our charts that has come out of my own direct experience of her in the last couple of months. And so it's been fascinating to speak with people when I talk to them about their natal Vesta and how much that congeals for them around their own feeling of power because the Vesta placement in their chart is almost a counterpoise to the sun where the sun is our spark of life and why we get incarnated and what we're up to on this planet. The Vesta is the altar. That's our actual mm -hmm. kind of hearth fire that we need to tend to. And so if someone's trying to impinge upon your Vesta and you don't protect it somehow, or you're not aware of that's where your true, you know, like private altar is that you have to tend to and exercise whatever like that placement is telling you, then you will feel powerless or defensive or some kind of, you know, like something's off, right? But if you're given the space to live into the Vesta placement and work with it, then, then you're unstoppable because it, it, it kind of brings something from the solar sovereignty into a lived human experience of sovereignty by saying like, okay, I've got a full battery now, you know, my own, because I feel my own sense of power and sovereignty. Right. And this works for male-bodied people too, right. Or male-identified folk. Like, you know, we think of the Vestal Virgin's vow of chastity as some kind of moral thing again. And it's not that, right? Like the, the young Vestal was rendered out of her family. She was sort of given up for adoption by the Roman state and all ties to her bio family ceased to exist because they didn't want any political ramifications of said biological family impinging upon her ability to serve the state, mm -hmm. right? So then this became this idea of this emancipation at the age of 10 with this vow of chastity so that the Vestal didn't create a new biological family and a new political alliance with a new set of people that was not the Roman state. But I don't believe that they were asexual. I think they just didn't have sex with men and got pregnant by it, right? So, I mean, there was this issue of politics in this relational order where you had to stay pregnancy-free, but not necessarily asexual. Hmm. Something hmm. to think about. Yeah, right? I, you gave me so many things to think about just now. <laughs> I can't even tell you. My Vesta just came alive in my head. Within, oh, good. Within two house systems, too. Oh, like, good. I, it was like, wait, it's like... <laughs> yeah, right? And oh. mine's in the 12th house. So I'm like, what am I talking about? <laughs> How have I gone my whole life with all this? Oh, wait, but my whole sign, it's in the first. Hmm, See, yeah. interesting, right? I've got so, a sixth, seventh blend going on. There you on, go. And, yeah. and my partner has his North Node on my Vesta. So yeah. Uh, you can see how yeah. maybe that just came alive a little bit there. There you go. But hey, yeah. I, that's, I'm so excited that you shared all that information and your your journey with it because yeah. um, I just learned a lot. Uh, wish I had well, more I think, time you know, to pick your brain about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that goes, if we were widen the lens and back away from the direct 
you know, you know, five foot level of the topic, but I think it's on all of us to just try whatever is calling to you in astrology land. And you think you want to get into, and, you know, and this summit is going to be a big smorgasbord of that because it's like, what are you really curious about? And just get into it and see where it takes you and see what your engagement with it is, right? I mean, if I stopped in my relationship with Vesta with Demetra George's book, Asteroid Goddesses, we wouldn't have had this conversation. Yeah. But I took it in my own way and and tried it for myself and got into this really cool relationship with this asteroid, right? And so I think it's really cool to expose yourself to all kinds of new techniques and new people doing different things than you and see where you can go and grow and just let it have an open mind, you know, and try it. Even if you think you're committed to a certain path or tradition, it's good to take a stroll around astrology land, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I'm pretty sure you have uh Libra planets, don't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think what you just said is perfect with the development of, uh, of, any astrologer to be the astrologer, the best astrologer they can be, is to have a relationship with the planets, to have a relationship with the bodies that call out to you in that way, because you're only going to fully understand something when you engage with it and develop a partnership with it. Um, and so, yeah, you have to, it's almost like you have to take it beyond what you learned with other people and know that there is more to learn and there's more to experience with it. And that's actually the beauty of practicing astrology, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that being said, um, all right. So I know, uh, Dr. Jen has places to be. So, okay. Where can people find you? What do you got going on? Do you have any, a word from the mountain astrologer you'd like to share before we part? Oh, uh, we need people to submit. We can only publish what we receive, right? So there's a number of things. We're currently hiring for new editorial talent. And so that's potentially multiple positions. It depends on who shows up and what best team we can make. And we are also always looking. So one of my favorite new developments is poetry, but it has to be astrologically themed and good, right? So, you know, sometimes we were receiving poems that had nothing to do with astrology. And it's like, we think we need to be a little more clear about this. So, um, you know, engaging poetically with the sky, I think is very amazing and, and interesting to share. And then also, you know, we have an article system where you, instead of writing the full article, you propose something. Streamlines, streamlines the work for everyone. So you can say, okay, I'd like to write an article about this. What do you think? And so I'm just very interested to see what are people writing about, right? What are you curious about? Put 4,000 words together um, after we say, please send us your article. And let's, you know, get, I would like to see the, the age range of the published people sink a little bit. Because right now, you know, TMA was a magazine that got founded in 1987 and a lot of the people that are published in it tend to be of an older generation who still subscribed to magazines. And so I'm amazed, you know, that, that, you know, I was just learning astrology in the mid nineties and TMA is now, you know, where I work. So, you know, there's this idea of subscribing to a print magazine and having the pages and the way we consume astrological information now is very, you know, short form. Facebook post or tweet. And so I'm really interested in continuing to have these long form thought pieces come out um, beyond just reading on a screen. There's so much screen time, especially in the pandemic, like get a piece of paper in your hands, right? But I can only publish with the team what we get inside of our inbox, right? So I need people to submit their good work and, and share their ideas. Like I'm thinking about doing this and we can say, yes, move on with that. Keep going. We'd love to see it, right? Um, and not just forecasting pieces, but also pieces just about all kinds of things around astrology land, whether it's a history piece, a philosophy of astrology, or, you know, the application of one unique aspect of a certain technique. You know, I think it'd be really great to have more people um, getting in there. And, and yeah, so... I guess that's my big pitch oh, that way. There's <laughs> your open call, people. If you have been writing or have ideas, and maybe I'm saying this to myself, I'm that's yeah, <laughs> going going back totally. out. You know, uh, I I think that's great to get uh, a wider range of voices uh, into a longer format, like you're saying, because right. it is a little a lot of quick quips with astrology, and but you know there is a lot of value to uh, a, a longer, well thought out. Uh, approach to whatever subject uh, of astrology is being tackled and, you know, long live print. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, and so what's, uh, Jen, what's your website? Where can people um, find you? So jenzart.com, but it, that might not be easy to spell Z-A-H-R-T. So I also have celestialspark.com leads you to the same place. And that is where you can 
buy the Vesta oils, for example, and also book a reading, whether it's a Vesta attunement or an hour-long session or astrolocality, um, you can find me there. Perfect. Celestialspark.com. Yeah. All right. Well, of course, you know, I always do a blog post for whoever joins me. So I will do one for Jen as well. And we'll have that information there uh, just in case you want a quick click. Um, and I'll also have the information on how to register for the summit, because if you haven't yet get in there, it's going to be free to watch for the day of the talks, but there's also going to be 24 hour replays and uh, you can purchase the all access pass to get the fabulous bonuses like the one Jen is going to be offering uh, just by going and signing up for that site. Uh, so you can find me over at energeticprinciples.com and also on, you know, the good old social medias at energetic principles. Um, and when does this air? Can I share anything? I think it's already after the fact I am doing new talks on clubhouse that are already going to happen after this, but just, if you want to check me out there, I'm at mystic Mel and I'm going to host some, uh, dream chats to share dreams and the relation through astrology and kind of work through dream symbolization and use the, uh, the hive mind to bring things to the surface um, and look for more talks from Christina in uh, Ms. Chartreuse and I on Clubhouse as well before the summit. So, all right. Well, if you like what you heard here today, leave a nice review where you listen to this, share it with the friends, spread the good word to help us be seen further. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and once again, Jen, I really thank you for your time. You're always a pleasure to chat with. Thanks for having me. All right. And thank you so much for listening to us chat about all types of fabulous things. We were wishing you a wonderful week. And as always, may the stars be with you. Mm-hmm.